0: Hey folks, welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast that is focused 100% on everything hematology. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist. Today's podcast is Dr. Naveen Pemmaraju. Dr. Naveen Pemmaraju is an associate professor in the Department of Leukemia, Division of Cancer Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. We are going to talk about managing rare malignancies in the field of hematology and a particular disease that Dr. Pemaraju has actually pioneered how we treat and how we diagnose. I have to say what Naveen has done over the past several years is amazing in terms of his ability to work with colleagues and with collaborators to advance the field in this form of uh, leukemia. Before we get started, um, a little bit about you. Just tell us a little bit about you and how did you end up at MD Anderson and what do you do day in and day out?
1: Well, thank you, Shadi, for having me and for all of your support to me and and all the investigators over the years. Um, I think platforms like this and like the ones you've done before to get the word out there have been so important, particularly during the pandemic. But um, for me, I think uh, it all starts with... um, you know, this concept that I grew up uh, in a family of you know Indian immigrants. Uh, my father uh, is a physician and uh, kind of grew up in a medicine household. And um, by the time I went to internal medicine at Johns Hopkins uh, in Baltimore, I got a really rigorous training in medicine and knew I wanted to be a hematologist. So from there, I've been here in Houston, believe it or not, for 15 years, exactly to the date of this podcast, and um, kind of came up through the ranks here. So hemonk fellow, Assistant to associate professor uh, in leukemia under the mentorship of Dr. Agul Kantarjan, Dr. Marina Kanapleva, Dr. Mazafra Kazabosh. And um, I think the one liner would be that I have a worldwide interest in rare, ultra rare blood cancers to give a voice to those who don't have a voice and to open up new research doors that basically were forgotten before.
0: That's a very good segue. Uh, Congrats on everything you're doing. I want to start by asking you, Naveen, how do we define rare or ultra-rare cancers? And the reason I ask is because, you know, look, you could, let's take acute myeloid leukemia, right? You could look at the number of cases diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia a year, and there's not a lot uh, compared to breast cancer or lung cancer. So how do we
1: define rare cancer? I love that question a lot because obviously there's an NCI definition and those numbers are good and they evolve over time and and they'll say, you know, 10 to 15 per uh, XYZ, but actually what you're asking is so essential. I think for us, the definition of rare and ultra rare is really these diseases that are maybe a thousand Americans a year or less, however you want to say it. And they usually are diseases that haven't yet entered into the common practice, lexicon, heme boards. And they're so rare that they can be missed or mimicked by other diseases. And so pathologists uh, are not signing out these cases. The WHO, ICC, whatever classifications haven't caught up yet. And then oftentimes there's not drugs targeting these uh, rare diseases. So maybe something more of a common modern definition uh, like that. And then I think the second aspect is a forgotten disease, something that pharmaceutical investigators, researchers, advocates, uh, may not be paying attention to as much because there hasn't been as much attention being paid to them. So it's kind of a full circle. So I, I want to put that modern definition out there.
0: I actually love that. I love the idea that the definition is not based on the number of incidents, number Precisely. Of cases, right? Precisely. Um, you got so it. yeah, I mean, cases that could be mimic. That's a, that's a great definition. I hope listeners appreciate that. Um when you think about these rare and ultra rare diseases though the in order for you to look at effective therapies take me through your mindset how you conduct clinical trials for these because these are tough patients to find and diagnose and like how do you even start how do you even start finding therapies to these and, and if you do you have a hypothesis about a drug that may work for this particular disease it's probably tough to do a randomized controlled trial. I mean maybe I don't know. I'm right. not an expert here, but how do you do the regulatory aspect of that?
1: I love it. I love this question because it really as you well know, we've known each other for a while. It kind of defines my life and career what you said. It's everything what you asked. I think we'll use blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm BPDCN, you know, one of my passion areas as the example, exactly as you said. You have a disease that is not being diagnosed properly it's kind of hiding in plain sight so either signed out as aml nos or aml with leukemia cutis so there has to be at the pathology level uh, an awareness that there is immunohistochemistry flow diagnostic algorithm that took us 10 years then after you have a diagnosis the name changed so many times the classification it's not who or icc within who the last five classifications it's either changed name or family of neoplasms. Then you finally have a name, you have a diagnosis. Now the next 10 years is exactly what you said. Are there identifying features of the rare disease that either set it apart from the more common diseases or can be back extrapolated from the common? In the case of BPDCN, there wasn't really anything. And then the identification of the new target. In this case, CD123, IL-3 receptor alpha, and then another five to 10 years of drug development And it turns out that that's where the answer lies, which is if you can focus in on a rare, ultra-rare disease with a specific target, in our case CD123, the drug that we led to FDA approval together in this field is still, as of this recording, the first and only CD123-targeted agent in all of Hemonc and all of medicine. And now that drug, or at least that target, can then be back extrapolated to the more common diseases, AML, lymphomas, other lymphoid malignancies. So I think it has to be recognition, diagnostic algorithm, an ability to differentiate subsets within subsets. We're seeing it in solid tumors, NTREC, and other uh, uh, subtypes. And then the uh, evaluation of targeted therapies, and then the practical application to go back to other diseases.
0: You mentioned uh, BPCD, and uh, tell us what does that stand for?
1: Plastic plasma cytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, BPDCN. So, immature cells of a certain type, we think myeloid derived PDCs that like to traffic skin, immune system, blood, bone marrow, lymph nodes, and unfortunately into the CNS, and then, you know, sort of blood cancer uh, from that. And this BPDCN, we think is about 500 to 1,000 Americans a year.
0: But 10 years ago, there was no BPCDN
1: there was no entity or name of BPDCN. You're right. That name was crystallized only in 2008 by the WHO. Prior to that, it was called any number of names, blastic NK cell lymphoma, CD4 positive, CD56 positive, hematodermic tumor, you name it. And so at first it was thought to be a lymphoid, uh, you know, lymphoma, then a skin cancer, then maybe an AML. And now it's thought of as, as its own entity. And now in 2022, WHO uh, once again reclassified into uh, dendritic cell and histiocytic neoplasm. So just an ex- exact example of what you're talking about. What is a rare disease? A rare disease is one that's hiding in plain sight and is so misunderstood over time that the name and the classification can change each time there is one.
0: But what what made them in 2008, 2009, like what happened? Uh-huh. Was there something special
1: that happened where people said, you know, we found something, so let's make yes. it its own entity. Exactly right, you're right. So that was a seminal moment in our field. Before that, it was thought to be a lymphomatous type malignancy. And what basically to answer your question, yeah, the supposition was that there was a unique cell. It was a precursor to plasma dendritic cells or PDCs, a myeloid derived cell. That was put forward to be the putative cell of origin. That's our working diagnosis. That's our understanding. And so because of that long name PDC plasma dendritic cell that's where the name was born
0: And did you just get uh, um, involved in the research of BPCdN by chance like serendipity or it's hard yeah. to believe that you're a fellow and you thought you know what I'm gonna just specialize <laughs> in BPCdn
1: <laughs> you know me I'm an honest guy so you you know exactly correct yeah you you can't you can't say you had had that in your heart before there was a name you know to it no you're exactly right. I can say for sure, anyone who knew me from 20 years ago, from Johns Hopkins to now, always was going to be a blood cancer, leukemia physician. As you know, I have interest in other rare tumor types, myeloproliferative neoplasms, et cetera. So, what happened was this very interesting story. I love sharing it, which is when I got to the MD Anderson Fellowship, this is now 2008, 09, 10, I was working you know, with my mentors, leukemia faculty. And I had two patients, Shadi, two patients in a row in one month with BPDCN. The name had just been crystallized. So for everyone out there, 2008 is when I joined the fellowship, and that's exactly when I became interested in this. And so both of them died. We gave them uh, multi-agent chemotherapy regimens. One was young. One was an older patient. Presented to the group. Dr. Kantarjan asked, what do you think about this entity who's specializing? And I said, there's not really much information. He said, hey. You should be the one to lead the charge and and, and take it up and, and you should be the expert. And, and as you and I know, Gandhi once said, if you, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world, I really take that seriously. That's what Dr. Contarjan basically told me. And I'll never forget that day I was presenting in 2008 in the leukemia meeting, and my life has never been the same since. I thought to myself, if I'm going to move the field, if I'm going to do something, why shouldn't i be the expert in this and so i put together my first series by the time we published it i think it was 2012 it was a 13 patient series at, at asco um, so i guess that's what 10 11 years ago now um, and then that led one thing to another publications identification of the field finding the cd 123 targeted agent treating the patients and now patients from all over the world coming to see us
0: amazing really amazing story so tell us a little bit about how you diagnose this mm. and what are the clinical manifestations of this disease and the reason I ask, because you did mention pathologic diagnosis is so key right and uh, and I, I I you know I mean these are so such rare tumors so for the general pathologists in the community or not the super specialized institution, what are the key features that they should make them pick up the phone and talk to a specialist clinically or pathologically?
1: yeah that's great i mean that's exciting you know now that we now that we're getting into the clinic here you could not have said it better which is rare diseases are never as rare as we think they are Uh, again this hiding in plain sight model so i think the key is is any acute leukemia any uh, lymphoma case any skin involving tumor you really should be thinking about bpdcn and so it always starts at the level of the pathologist and the dermatologist and i didn't mention earlier this unique entity primarily can affect the skin. It's actually one of the rare hematologic diseases that commonly affects the skin. So the three things to remember is that on immunohistochemistry and flow, there is kind of an algorithm now. We always say, think one, two, three, four, five, six. So these are those CD markers, cluster of differentiation surface markers. DPDCN uniquely will have CD4, CD56, CD123. Now that triad will be about 80 to 90% sensitive. So it's still leaving 10%. Then you can add in the other PDC markers of CD303, TCL1, TCF4, that gives you near 100% sensitivity and specificity. So that's one. Two is biopsy of skin lesions. We see, you and I do in our practices, skin lesions that get treated with antibiotics, steroids come back in a month. It happens to all of us. That's even happened to some, many of us uh, when we we're patients ourselves, but tissue is the issue, an unclear lesion, particularly dark, purplish, changing in color. Yes, we all know about melanoma and solid tumors, but man, maybe it could be a blood cancer manifesting. So biopsy early. And then three is that these diseases can affect the central nervous system. Not 5% like AML, shoddy, but more like 20 to 30% like Burkitt's leukemia, Philadelphia positive, ALL, et cetera. So you're really trying to identify the rare disease and stage it with the appropriate things, bone marrow, uh, lymph node biopsy, skin biopsy, PET-CT scan, a lumbar puncture. So I think thinking about the disease, knowing it exists, checking CD123 and the associated panel, and then anyone with skin lesions that are not improving biopsy.
0: That, I mean, it, it's a myeloid malignancy. I mean, this is, has set That's right. It's not a lymphoid. At some point, they thought it was lymphoid. No, That's it's correct. A- Yeah, that's correct. So so skin lesions, CNS, and obviously abnormalities in the peripheral blood and the marrow, but the peripheral blood also could be, like, could you have a marrow affected and the peripheral blood is normal?
1: Yes. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes. and, And so each permutation combination, you can have skin only with no marrow, no lymph node, lymph node only, bone marrow only with no skin. So, even though it's a skin involving malignancy, not everybody will have that at presentation. I'm glad you asked that and brought that up. And you treat these
0: patients like AML, like 7 and 3 type of thing, or what? Right.
1: right. Historically, that's correct. So, around the world, most commonly it was AML based therapies like 7 and 3, ALL based therapies uh, like uh, contargent hyper CBED regimen, or lymphoma based regimens. Like chop. Now, I say historically, that's actually still, those are the most common modalities across the world because most people don't have access to CD123 or or BCL2 or other agents. And then also, there is the concept that it's a chemo-sensitive, steroid-sensitive disease, and the targeted agents don't cross uh, the blood-brain barrier. And so to bring it all together into the modern era, we know there was some historical efficacy of AML, ALL-based regimens, but not, not a great overall survival. There's a good efficacy with the CD123, and so in in our group, we're actually doing exactly what you just said, combining everything, so more of a myeloma-based approach, AML, which is CD123, chemo, venetoclax, BCL-2 as a triple therapy combination, because all of these things have activity in BPDCN.
0: So you you have, despite the fact there's a CD123 target therapy, what's the name of the drug that we
1: target CD123? That's right. So the first in-class drug is Tagraxafusp or TAG, SL401, first CD 123 targeted agent, approved ages two and older for BPDCN. We got that approved in December of 2018. Right. So as a monotherapy, very, very nice outcomes, which was 90%, 90% uh a remission rate in the frontline setting. That's among the 29 patients treated frontline, of which 72% were complete remissions. Um and and a lot of those patients were able to be bridged to a transplant. But as you said, I think it's a great start to the field. But the uh, current clinical trials are doublets and now triplets, trying to aim for either cure or eradication of disease, maybe without needing a stem cell transplant. So that's what I'm eager to see over the next five years.
0: So right now you do the kitchen sink for these patients because they're obviously sick. But but right now, if there's an opportunity to do an allo transplant, wow. you still do allo transplant.
1: That's right, I wanna emphasize that, particularly for my transplant colleagues who they know that I say this at every talk, but I'm glad you uh, asked me here. Stem cell transplant, particularly aloe and CR1, is still part of the curative approach to BPDCN. Some of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Kozelbosch, MD Anderson, Dr. Carfon Dabaja uh, in Florida, and others have published on this. So as usual in most of these myeloid malignancies, younger FIT patients, CR1, aloe transplant, there is some literature, especially in older skin-only patients, perhaps auto-transplant may be a modality, but that's still under investigation. So I like what you said, regardless of your therapy, CD123 therapy, chemo, HMA-Ven, whatever you do, older or younger, please refer and consider allotransplant and CR1, could be part of the cure fraction.
0: What's the cure rate, like percent cure from 100? I know you said 500 to 1,000 patients, although you, know, you could make an argument that we may get more prevalence now yeah. that we can diagnose it more, but it's still going right. to be but what's the, what But what are the expectations?
1: Yeah, that's uh, awesome. We actually asked that exact question and, and we didn't know the answer until recently. So um, from the New England Journal paper, from the pivotal experience that I quoted to you, we kept following patients and actually there was a fourth stage of patients. So this is now 65 frontline patients and we published Shadi and JCO just a few months ago So that's a median follow-up of three years. And again, about half of the patients, 45 to 50% were transplanted in CR1. It's very nice. There is a tail to the curve. You know, the median overall survival is there. I mean, the follow-up is only three years. So I'd like to quote to you five and 10 year data, but you you definitely see about 40% of patients, you know, at the two-year mark alive, tail to the curve. Um, Many of those patients were transplanted. In my own practice, I definitely have patients who are alive and well now at the 10-year mark, so I'm very proud to share that with you. Some of those patients, auto-transplant, some allo, some not receiving transplants. So I can definitely say we have a group of patients who are cured. Obviously, what I owe the, the field is what are those characteristics? So who are those patients? What about the patients who died early? How many of them are CD123, chemo, combination? How many needed a transplant? And then if they relapse, how are we salvaging them in the long-term setting? Many of those patients did not get CNS therapy, and now we're including that. So lumbar punctures for everybody, and I think that's going to help um, everything that we just talked about.
0: Well, it's going to keep you busy to get that done. I'm not sure. Are you still able to see patients with myelofibrosis or myeloprophic neoplasms or yes, focus deeply yes. on this?
1: No, it's a good question. Yeah. I mean, as much as I publish on this area, the patients themselves, as we talked about, you know, a, a lot of the consulting work will be remote. So, you know, we definitely see uh, a, a couple to several patients in the clinic a month, but that's that's really about it that come. So the majority of the practice for me is still MPN, AML, CML, you know, the other myeloid malignancies. So it's a that's a great question. Well, look, this was
0: really great. I mean, I think that uh, there's uh, really a lot here to digest. I think my last question to you is that um, I still want to talk about, uh, and that's, you know, take as much time as you need to respond to this. I want to understand um, to get regulatory approvals to these, there's an accelerated pathway, as you know. Oh, nice. Yeah. What do you do? Like, you know, you can do phase two and look at response rates and things like that. Do you feel that with these rare and ultra rare tumors, could you do a randomized control trial? In other words, you have a target Mm -hmm. therapy against CD123. Are you doing a study where you are doing the kitchen sink of all of these patients and you're comparing this to just seven and three, or do you feel that this is not something that you could do because patients with seven and three, their outcomes is worse. I, you know, take me through your thought process That's awesome. and, and how do you design a clinical trial for ultra-rare tumors?
1: Yeah, I think this is really important and I, and I love this discussion. couple points I would put forward. Yeah, so one is be, after the uh, Tigrax plus of approval, you know, now the field has really exploded in a good way for our rare disease field. So mainly focusing on CD123 and combination. So there is the, the IMGN632, which is pivecamab sunarine, now, in active clinical trials, has FDA breakthrough therapy designation from the relapse refractory uh, setting, and so now has moved into the front line. And then there's the combination studies that we mentioned uh, the IMGN VenASA is in AML, um, and then the SL41 VenASA and SL41 HyperCVAD VEN in, in AML, BPDCN, and, and BPDCN, respectively. So, ex- exactly what you said the field has really nicely gone in that direction. You know, all of these so far, Shadi, are, as you asked, they are single-arm studies uh, in this ultra-rare disease. It is historically difficult to not only diagnose and identify these patients, as we discussed, but also to find them for clinical trial. But uh, I am, as always, as as all of us are, you know, big proponents of doing the most rigorous clinical trials and science that we can. And so, there won't be the numbers necessarily in some of these rare diseases like BPDCN to do a large phase three randomized. The standard of care was never defined, and now you have the investigational therapies. But as you said, can you do randomized trials, uh, phase two or phase three, with either smaller numbers or other set points? Can you use historical data? Can we incorporate AI and these new kind of algorithms and data sets to be able to ascertain What's the historical? I think those are all open questions. I think another point of what you said is when the standard of care was never identified, because there really is seven and three ALL based chop. You know, maybe you can do a best available therapy uh, kind of a, a arm and compare to the investigational. So I think it's actually a really great question. I think historically people have always said in a rare disease you can't do it. Actually, it's not correct. You can do randomized studies. You can do these rigorous studies. But you have to design it and power it in that way. So to that end, I I really love this question because that's something that's been on our mind. And we just recently formed the NABC, the North American BPDCN Consortium. We published this in Blood just a few months ago, um, and Blood nicely featured, featured Spotlight. We put together 66 investigators, so myself and 65 others, United States, Canada, and Mexico, Exactly, as you said, we think the numbers are much higher than what have been historically reported. Um, And in fact, we are finding that in our own analysis. And so we are put together this formal consortium, and we hope in the coming years to do larger scale studies, precisely as you said, uh, and to be able to identify what is the standard of care, so control arm and then uh, whatever the newest uh, investigational agent is. So I would say I think we need to evolve and modify how we do clinical trials in rare and ultra rare diseases and give more options to investigators, patients, and regulatory bodies to be able to evaluate the data in smaller numbers.
0: Well, thank you so much. This was really amazing and wonderful. Congratulations on all of the achievements you're doing. Congratulations to the patients that actually are getting access to much better therapies and newer approaches. Dr. Naveen Pemaraju on the he monk Pulse podcast, the podcast where you keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology, Naveen.
1: <laughs> wonderful, wonderful.